Welcome to Unapologetically Us, the podcast where immigrants and their children celebrate our unique heritage, consider what it means to live in between cultures, and contemplate what it means to be American. I am your host, Dr. B. And welcome back to Unapologetically Us. Today, I have a special guest, Rebecca Snyder, who I fellowship with, and she's been so supportive of the podcast. And she just one day said to me, you know what? I'd love to share my story of transracial adoption. And so I thought this would be a perfect avenue to sort of talk about these issues of cultural identity and being second gen and trying to make sense of all of the in-betweenness with this added layer of growing up in a family that isn't, that doesn't share your heritage. So welcome, Rebecca. And thank you so much for um, inviting me to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Tyler. I'm excited to be able to share my story with people. So let's start with your story. Please tell me your story. All right. Uh, So I was born in China in 95 in a small little city, kind of like south central east part of China. And I grew up in an orphanage from two months to age eight months or sorry, age 10 months. Uh, So I was in the orphanage for eight months. And then to a couple from Cincinnati came over, they're a white couple. They came over and adopted me when I was 10 months old. And then I grew up in, I'd say like upper middle class white community there. It was in a somewhat mixed black and then white community, but the people that I was around the most were white people in Cincinnati. So yeah, I identified initially like kind of as white. I would grow up forgetting that I was Chinese a lot of the time. My family was very open with my adoption. I also have a younger sister who is also adopted from China. We're not biologically related, mm-hmm. um, but they were very open with my sister and I about our adoption, that we were from China, but I still didn't really feel like I was Chinese or didn't really feel like I was any different from all the other white kids that I was around. And it, like I tell people that I would forget that I was Chinese until I look in the mirror and be like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not white. And it's kind of like this, this shock just growing up when I would remember that I didn't really look like the people around me. Wow. There's so much to unpack with that. But I'm curious about, do you know the backstory of why you were put in an orphanage at two months? I don't know specifically with my family, but in 95, that was still during China's one-child policy, where a majority of the families, there were some exceptions that were made, but a majority of the families were only allowed to have one child just as a population control. And in that culture, it's a very generational mentality amongst families. Like you take care of your aging parents when you're older and they're, they can't take care of themselves. Males are also valued more than females. So a lot of women or a lot of girls that were born during that time were either just left to die or they were given away in secret to orphanages or just kind of left in a place where they, the parents knew that the child would be found. So I know that I was left under a stairwell, actually, of an orphanage director. And then that orphanage director brought me to the orphanage that she worked at. Okay. So mm-hmm. your parents, your adopted parents got you at 10 months. And can you, do you remember the first time you realized that I guess you weren't 
like your adopted parents, but Chinese instead? Like when you look in the mirror or what was that moment where you realized I'm not white, I am Chinese? I don't think I have a specific memory about it. I think it probably happened when I was in preschool. I remember my mom came into preschool when I was younger for like a parent day. And I remember bringing her in. I think I vaguely remember her coming in. And I don't know if someone said something to me about my mom not looking like me or if I recognized it then. But I do remember a little bit that I was different than the other kids whose parents, you know, they, they were the same color as their parents or they looked a little bit like their parents because I mean if you're biologically related to your parents you have a biological mirror and you can look at your mom and your dad and say oh I have this feature for my mom and this feature for my dad and this uh, personality characteristic from one of my parents or an aunt and uncle but I didn't have that growing up so I think probably around that time was when I realized that I was missing out on something that the other kids had. Mm. When you said that, it reminded me of this movie I watched. And I don't remember the name of it right now, but it was actually about African families who would leave their children in England in the 70s because they wanted better for them or they, were, they wanted them to have, I guess, British citizenship, but they would go back home to get their studies. And nonetheless, this one guy, it's his story. And uh, he's a popular actor as well. But he was saying how when he realized he wasn't white, that he kind of experienced some self-hatred. Did you have any feelings of, of that? Or how did you negotiate your racial otherness to mm-hmm. being a part of not only a family that wasn't like you, but a family that's part of the racial majority? Yeah. So just unpacking that a little bit. As you were talking, I was trying to think if I felt like a self-hatred. I don't know if I really would have, when I was growing up, at least recognized that there is this part of me that I didn't like. But I remember when I was younger and I'd go to the store with my parents or I'd go somewhere with my mom, I'd be kind of embarrassed. There's like this feeling of shame that that someone would recognize that I didn't look like my mom. Or like if I called my mom and said, oh, hey, mom, I'm over here. It was, I always felt a little bit weird doing that because it was like this embarrassment that I was someone who was I guess a different skin color calling out to someone who was white and didn't look like me I don't know if there was like this recognition of the majority minority thing really it was more of just this feeling of not fitting in with people and having to be confronted with this not fitting in because I was I mean, it was right there in my face that I didn't fit in if I was calling to someone who didn't look like me. Yeah, so there's the the shame component of not looking like my mom. But then when I was growing up, there were some areas that I was, I experienced some of the privilege of having a white family, like in the opportunities that I had available to me. Plus my parents were upper middle class. So just economically, I had more opportunities. I grew up in a church that my family was pretty involved in. So just through that church, I made a lot of friends who were white. I would hang out with a lot of the white kids. So my mentality really around how I viewed race was from a majority mindset. And part of that privilege, I guess, too, was not really realizing that some of the microaggressions that I would face from other people who would say like, oh, you're 
your English is really good or where are you from, right? And then they find out that I'm Ch- I was born in China. They'd say, oh yeah, I have a cousin who married a guy from China. And it's like, oh, that's great. And yeah. Mm-hmm. For, to me, I didn't really recognize until I was probably an undergrad that that was something that made me really uncomfortable. I would always just kind of clam up because I didn't know how to respond. But later I recognized that that was maybe not fully a microaggression, if um, that's the right term for it. But that was something that always made me feel not a part of the culture that I felt like I identified with. Right. And I'm assuming this came from non-Asian American. So how about your experience with Asian Americans and then Asian, Eastern Asian born people? Because some of the people, friends I have, I've kind of gotten the impression that sometimes there's tensions between the native native born mm-hmm. um, Asians and Asian Americans, like you're not really Asian or you're fresh off the boat, all of these tensions that exist even within the group. So mm-hmm. here you are Asian or Chinese specifically and a majority white family. So you're transcultural. And how do you relate to Asian Americans and Asian born or Chinese born, or not just Chinese born, but East Asian or Asian born um, people? Mm-hmm. So when I was younger, I pushed away anything that was related to China, anything related to Asian culture. My family would celebrate Chinese New Year. We'd, my mom would cook Chinese food. She took cooking class when I cooked Chinese food. We also celebrated my adoption day and would look at pictures and stuff like that. So there's always this, a little bit at least, of Chinese culture that I would see when I was growing up. But I always pushed it away because to me, it was something that I didn't really feel was connected to me. And then when I went to undergrad, because I, growing up, had felt white and fit in with the white kids as much as I knew how to fit in. When I went to undergrad, I was suddenly treated as an Asian person because no one in undergrad really knew that I was adopted. So they would just treat me based off of how I looked. So I was like, oh, well, I'm now the Asian person in the room. So I guess that means I'm Asian. I don't know. What does that look like to treat you based on how you looked? Yeah, well, one, I, I mean, some people would come out and say like, oh, I'm the, she's the Asian one in the group or she's the, the Chinese person in the group. And, and there was just this assumption that I came with this culture, like people would ask me questions about Chinese culture. They would ask me about food. They would ask me about a holiday or something. And I always felt weird answering those questions if I knew the answer or if I didn't, because it was like I felt this. Like, I didn't have a right to answer that question because I didn't, one, I pushed away the culture, but I also didn't know a lot about it. So I would, if I knew the answer, I would answer it, but I felt like this inauthenticity or like this feeling of like, I can't really speak with authority about this because I'm so disconnected from it. Right, like an imposter. Um, So yeah, like an imposter feeling. How did you connect with other Asian Americans? Mm -hmm. So in undergrad, or maybe it was towards the end of undergrad, I reconnected with some friends that I had grown up with because my dad would best preach at a Chinese church in Cincinnati, maybe like once every couple of months when I was really young. And so when he'd do that, I'd go to church with him and hang out with in Sunday school with some other kids who were Chinese or Taiwanese American. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I reconnected with some of them during undergrad just because they were back in town after graduating or they were, you know, they were working in the area. So I reconnected with them, started hanging out with them. But then in undergrad as well, I also had some friends. One was a girl who was half Filipino 
Mm. And then there are some other people who they were foreign exchange students. So we were all, I mean, we were different types of Asian American or not all of us were Chinese American, but so there are different representation of their Asian American in undergrad where I was around, but I was still like, I still felt like the white person in the group. And some of the people in that group would make comments like, oh, you're not really Asian. Really? You're, yeah, you're not really Asian. Or what's your perspective on this as someone who's white? And it was kind of like, okay, well, I'm not Asian because I'm not like you, but I'm also not white because all the white people tell me that I'm an Asian person. So like, I don't know what I am anymore. I'm just this person in the middle and it was like this really weird identity crisis I guess Um, and there's actually a term for it called the transracial adoption paradox where people who are adopted by people of a different race usually it's a majority culture white person adopting someone from a minority culture or internationally there's always this or there tends to be this moment when the child is separated from that family where they realize that they don't really fit in with any group and especially with the group that they identified with initially. Right. I mean, that's just a whole nother, whole other level of in-betweenness. Part of what inspired this podcast and, and my recent work in immigrant identity or a second generation American identity is this idea of not belonging to either culture. So it is fascinating to me how you might experience that having sort of grown up in a different cultural context. and. My experience with some Asian Americans, especially if they were born here, is that they may feel like they don't really belong to China, Korea, or Taiwan Mm -hmm. because they were born here. But I wonder whether or not among your circle, if they felt like they had a little bit more rights to the country Mm -hmm. than you because your family wasn't Asian. It's, It's just interesting in terms of like, how do we define who really belongs or not when really? you may have all been sort of may have shared a starting point um, mm-hmm. of not really knowing the culture as much. But at the same time, I guess it's possible that in their families, they were able to incorporate more cultural things. But your mom and your dad also tried to incorporate some cultural things. So mm-hmm. I'm just thinking out loud about this yeah. thing. I was just going to say that uh, some of my closest friends, there's a group of us, me and my sister were both adopted. And then there's two other girls who are siblings who are um, a quarter Filipino, a quarter Irish, and one half Taiwanese. And then another two sisters who are Taiwanese American. We all identify as Chinese American or they identify as Taiwanese American, but we all have a different yeah. like background, even though we identify pretty similarly. And something that I've always thought was interesting is that of the six of us, my sister and I are the only ones that were actually born in China. The other ones were born in America. And yet my sister and I feel the most removed from that culture because we didn't grow up in that culture. We don't know as much about it experientially. Right. So that is a whole other level of in-betweenness. Have you ever been back to China? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I was four and my sister was two, we went back for a school year. My, my dad was a business English teacher, but we went with a missions organization. And then I went back when I was 11 for two weeks. So when I was four, I remember little bits and pieces of it. I remember that I picked up, re-picked up, I guess, Chinese pretty quickly. Yeah, my parents told me the story of there was this guy who was trying to sell us something and I just told him off in Mandarin. And 
Like he understood what I was saying. We talked a little bit and then he just kind of walked away. But then, yeah, so I went to school. I went to a Chinese school in China, really hung out with kids that were there. I remember having a conversation very like faintly with a girl who was in Chinese school with me. And I think we were talking, I remember we were talking about apples for a while. So I remember saying the word apple in Mandarin. But then I think I, I remember us talking a little bit about my parents and how my parents weren't like her parents. It's a very like faint conversation, but I remember that a little bit. And then when I was 11, we went back for two weeks and just did a little bit of a tour around the cities that my sister and I were both from. We actually went back to each of our orphanages and got to see that. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, at the time I still, when I was 11, I still really didn't want much to do with Chinese culture. So it was it was just kind of like this, oh, this is a fun vacation. This is a a trip to see another land. But it wasn't like it was this going home feeling or anything like that at all. Like it was just like this um, foreign to you. Along for the trip. Yeah. Do you have any memory of how native Chinese people reacted or responded to you? Um I don't remember. I know how they responded to my dad though. My dad's six five and he is Blonde hair, blue eyes, very, very much not Chinese. Like they would stare at him and we'd walk down the street. They would talk about him or point at him and stuff. And I remember just yeah. holding his hand and being like, oh, everyone thinks my dad's so cool. Yeah. Not really recognizing what they were seeing. But I used to joke that if my future didn't work out the way I planned, I, I was going to make myself a self-promoting circus somewhere in East Asia huh. because when I went to Taiwan, I went to Taipei 101. Okay. We were in line. Mm -hmm. Taipei 101, one of the tallest buildings in the world. And people were looking at me. (laughs) Instead of looking up at the building. Exactly. And I'm like, well, listen, if we're going to do this, I can charge. Okay. I can make myself a circus. And people were amazed at my hair Mm -hmm. and of course my skin. And um, I've heard the same. You're kind of fabulous. I feel like they're also like, wow. No, I think it's like what you said with your dad, just different, tall. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember that experience. So they probably were responding to your father looking different. But I wonder, like when you went to Chinese school, did they know that you grew up in America? Your parents were white and did they treat mm-hmm. you differently? I don't know. You, how old were I you? don't remember. Yeah, I was so young. I don't um, really remember. I just remember like little random yeah. bits from that whole year. So we talked about Asian Americans here, but how about Chinese born, like people who may have come when they were teenagers or older? For me, I'm thinking about all the Africans and I am generalizing, not just Nigerians, but I would meet Africans who could tell I was African of African heritage and say to me, once they heard me talk, say, you're not African, Mm. Nigerian. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, where did you, how did you decide this? And there was a sense of, uh, you can't speak your language. You have mm-hmm. an American accent. So it was like this agreed upon belief um, amongst people from different parts of Africa that I would meet. So I'm wondering if you had any of that experience among any of them, if you met anyone or among mm-hmm. any native Chinese people that you would meet, were there, did they sort of question your authenticity as a Chinese person or a Chinese American person or? Mm -hmm. Well, 
when you were saying that, I was thinking that my family for it was probably a couple of years, they were a part of an international, I forget what the name of it was, like an international hospitality group. They would host students from UC who were studying abroad or just moving to the U.S. to go to school and then needed a place to stay until they found their own place. So we would host people at our house from China. And I remember that they were, I think, really intrigued by my sister and I because we looked Chinese, but we weren't really Chinese at all. And I remember asking him to teach me things in Chinese and like, I wanted to learn a little bit about Chinese culture. So he taught me how to say some words and I'd say some words and he's like, oh, you speak just like a native. I probably didn't. He's probably just being really nice. (laughs) But yeah, so I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, Maybe I'm just assuming, but I think it's pretty obvious that people know that I'm not culturally Chinese. I'm not, you know, I don't really fit in with people uh, from China, but at least I've noticed with people who are from China, I feel at least a little bit more comfortable owning that I'm not Chinese versus if I'm with groups of people who are Asian American, I feel like I'm a little bit, I should be, I guess, like I feel this internal pressure to be a little bit more like Asian American than to be like people who are from China. So because I feel that pressure to be more like Asian Americans or Chinese Americans, and I don't feel like that at all, it Mm. creates even more of this dissonance for me than it does if I'm hanging out with people who are from China. Wow, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. How did your experience as a transcultural adoptee inform your perspective on anti-Asian sentiments that Mm -hmm. have been around for a, a long time, but right now, at least within the past couple of months, is there's been a lot of focus on it, mm-hmm. especially with COVID-19. So has that ever been something that's affected you? So the question is two part. One, has have you ever experienced the impact of stereotyping of Asians in general, mostly East Asians? And two, how do you think your experience as a transcultural adoptee informs your perspective of it? Mm-hmm. So when I was younger, I actually only really notice the overt racism but a lot of the microaggressions or like the the comments that would point out that I was different but weren't really like overtly racist I didn't really I didn't I would maybe I'd recognize that it was it made me different and it would feel kind of weird but I never really recognized it as racism but the comments about like the pulling back the corners of the eyes or fake Chinese stuff that people would say that stuff really bothered me and it would make me really frustrated because it's like that's you're making fun of me because that's how I look but I'm not that at all I'm white you know I I, that's not me Mm -hmm. um and then once I went to undergrad and started I guess reassimilating into Asian American culture and Chinese American culture I started to recognize some of the microaggressions or some of the oh, your English is so good. Some of those comments like that were wrapped up in compliments that weren't really actually compliments. That stuff, that was when I started to notice that. And it was really frustrating for me because it's like, yeah, of course my English is good. That's the only language I've ever really known how to speak. Mm. So I would hope it's great. And then questions like, oh, where are you from? Those were also really uncomfortable for me because if I say, oh, I'm from China. Yeah, I was born in China, but I'm not really, that's not the culture that I identify with. But also it would be a lie to say that I'm from Cincinnati or I'm from Ohio. Uh, So one of my favorite stories, I worked at a pharmacy or I work at a pharmacy now and I had a nurse ask me where I was from. And I 
I knew exactly what he was asking. So I was like, come on, from the pharmacy. He's like, okay, <laughs> but where are you from? And I was like, well, I'm from Ohio. He's like, okay, well, where is your family from? Because your bone structure is really unique. Also, your English is really good. And I was like, oh, my family, my, my parents are from Ohio, which I mean, they were, that part wasn't a lie at all. He's like, okay, well then where are your ancestors? <laughs> that part, I was just like, dude, leave you me alone. Just, yeah, just leave me alone. I didn't want to be in this area for a really long time. Like I was just passing through trying to get my work done. I didn't want to get stuck here. Leave me alone. But I was just like, I was born in China. I was adopted. And yeah. And he was like, oh, okay. China, huh? I was thinking more, you know, like maybe Native American or Indian because your bone structure is so Wow. Yeah, I was just speechless. I was like, okay, uh, I don't know what to say to that. So I just left because I didn't really want to confront him and have a whole conversation because I was, I didn't think it would come out very respectful because I was really mad at him. So, but yeah, like questions like that of where are you from make me uncomfortable, especially because I have to answer or I feel this, I guess, internal conscience that I have to be truthful and say that I'm from China, which carries its own sort of assumptions about it. Yeah. And when talking with a friend of mine in one of our other episodes, she talks about how that question seems to insinuate that you obviously don't belong. And mm-hmm. I imagine you're like, but I've been here all my for most like majority of my life. Yeah. It's 10 months old. This mm-hmm. is my country. My family is from here. Like my home is here. Um, I was thinking of that story when I was listening to that. I was like, oh, I know exactly what she's talking about because I had a guy assume that I was Native American or Indian and when I told him I wasn't he was like oh that's weird like yeah how's that weird sorry that I didn't fit your idea of what I should have been I guess but how that informs how I see or how I feel about the Asian anti-Asian mindset that's been going on a lot I think it took me a while to really understand what I was feeling but I realized that I feel a lot of fear about it because especially feeling still kind of separated from Asian American culture, identifying as adopted Asian American, there's this distance from there. But then there's also the fear that because of how I look, even though it's not how I identify that people will assume, make an assumption and then act out against that assumption against me. And it could be something, it could be a comment or it could be something violent and just because of how I look. And it there's just a lot of fear that people will take out that sentiment on me yeah I can to some extent imagine and I I wonder well since you're now in a place where you've sort of it seems like you've reconciled your identity as Chinese and American Chinese biologically American culturally is that a fair assessment or how would you how have you made sense of your identity yeah so being comfortable with identifying as adopted Chinese American was a process that took a long time to get to. Uh, when I was younger, even though I felt like I identified with white people, I would still check the Asian slash Pacific Islander box and I'd fill out demographic data. After undergrad, as I started hanging out with more Asian Americans, I sort of rejected whiteness by dis- distancing myself from people who were white and identifying as Asian American. But I also felt like an imposter for saying that I was Asian American. And I also started to feel like I was being pushed into this ambiguous middle space between white and Asian because I didn't really feel accepted by any of the groups around me. 
So, and then a friend of mine from church corrected me and said that Chinese American is even more accurate than Asian American, but that still didn't feel right. He also told me that because I'm not technically Chinese American either, I'd sort of have to create my own cultural identity. This was a really frustrating and disorienting place for me to be in because I felt like this big amorphous blob that just kept getting pushed away from group to group. And really, I think it took being comfortable with being adopted before I could fully integrate all of the pieces that inform my cultural identity. Being comfortable with being adopted only happened within the past year or so as I worked through what it means to be adopted. Throughout my life, when I tell people I was adopted, they say things like, oh, you're so lucky. Your parents love you so much to do that. I bet you're so proud of them. And I would just nod along awkwardly. But I realize now that I really just that just created a sense of obligated gratitude that oversimplified how painful the process of adoption actually is. So specifically for me, I was abandoned when I was two months old, and this left a deep wound around feeling like I was unwanted. And like I just didn't, you know, like I just didn't fit in. Uh, And my parents were always supportive by honoring Chinese culture and being open with my sister and I about how we became a part of the family. But hearing people tell me how lucky I was made me feel like I wasn't allowed to grieve complicated loss that I had been through. And I think feeling that loss plus feeling like I was unwanted and feeling like I didn't belong biologically compounded the feeling of not belonging culturally. But as I worked through the adoption through therapy and was able to grieve what I had lost, I found that I could be grateful for my adoption and still acknowledge the pain that was involved. And over this past year of accepting the adoption, I also realized that I was accepting the part of me that is Chinese as well, so that I can now say confidently that I am an adopted Chinese American, and I can also embrace the unique perspective that I have to offer. I'm a fan of the show, This Is Us. I have been told that I should watch it. I've seen the, I think it was, it's either the beginning of season two or the finale of season two. I I feel like it's been out long enough or if I say what happened, it's not a spoiler anymore. But it was after a Super Bowl and I was just lying on the couch and didn't feel like getting up. So it's the episode where you find out what happens. Oh, yeah, Jack. Yeah, that's the only episode I've seen. And I was like, you know what? This is dramatic. I don't think I can do like every single episode is super dramatic. I like sitcoms and shows that are over in 20 minutes. But you can start anywhere in a season and not feel (laughs) like you've missed anything. So they've gotten a little better because every episode would make you cry. But. I guess from a media psychologist perspective, there's this concept called entertainment education. And it's it's this idea that we learn about other people's experiences through entertainment. There's a difference between someone telling us what they're experiencing and then seeing a depiction of it. And so one of the things I appreciate about the power of media is how it can bring um, light and elevate voices that are typically sort of put to the side. And so there is an episode in the most recent season where Randall, who is an African-American man who is raised in a white family, he talks about transcultural adoption. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time I even heard the term. And there's like this scene where he's sitting with a group of people and initially he doesn't talk, but at some point what comes up for him and other people is just, just what you said, this feeling of not feeling like you have to be grateful, but sort of feeling lost and grief and resentment about, hey, what happened to me? Holding those two feelings. I really appreciate you um, sharing that. And it also reminded me of the show. 
I said, mm-hmm. little fuck for This Is Us. I love that show. So, so yeah, I think that's, that's very fascinating, especially when it comes to having not just an American heritage, but again, a, a heritage sees away. And then, I, and, I, and I'll be wrapping up soon. I always have tons of questions. No, I feel free to ask questions. <laughs> I, I was looking something up as you were talking, trying to figure out what the term, or remember what the term was. But there's a psychologist named Pauline Boss. She uh, researched grief and in the 70s came up with a term called ambiguous loss, which is either a psychological loss where someone is present physically, but then they're gone mentally, psychologically, like absentee fathers who are kind of there sometimes, kind of not. But then there's also um, a physical loss. So people who are, they're lost at sea or they're, you know, uh, a lot of people in like in 9-11 who they were missing for a while and their families had no idea if they were alive and they'd made it out of the buildings or if they were dead. And there's this ambiguous grief that feel where you don't really know how to grieve because you are, there's not like this finality or this closure that you get. And so for adoptees, like that's a pretty, like that's a feeling that I think a lot of us probably feel is like we've lost something that we don't really, we don't really know how to grieve because we don't really have this closure on our story unless you're able to either meet your family or learn more about who your family was, what happened to them. But at least for me and my sister, we haven't had the opportunity to meet our biological family. So we don't really know much beyond where we were left and then what happened in the months after that. So it makes it really hard to grieve when you don't have that finality, I guess. Mm. This is just a whole, again, a, a different experience, but still similar to so many who kind of feel out of place. Mm-hmm. What I was going to revisit was this, having this privilege, this American privilege and identifying as American, being in this space and then having a connection to a country that sometimes is at odds. There's like a collective agreement at times amongst people in this country against China. Like, it's not like you're from, um, you know, I think we have a, kinder relationship with South Korea, let's say. Mm-hmm. China is like this, you know, there's, there are all of these ideas about China. Like, as like a big brother. Yeah. Um, so do you ever feel any of those tensions as well? Or do you kind of feel disconnected from it? And your main concern is how people might see you because of your physical, your physiological connections to China. Mm-hmm. I think I feel a little bit disconnected from that. Honestly, that's not something I've thought as much about. But I have wondered, like, oh, what if, and like, if I were thinking extremely, like, what if China took over? How would I be viewed? Would I be able to assimilate well? Or would I be automatically pointed out as not Chinese? But beyond that, I haven't really thought much about my feelings um, on the American or U.S. Chinese version. Where that question sort of comes from is uh, someone I know who was born in China. But the way people thought about Chinese people really affected her. Mm -hmm. And for her, I guess her identification with the culture is much stronger. She has stronger ties. But people, the way people casually talked about the Chinese government and their opinions about the Chinese government and how things were run there, she was extremely sensitive to it. And of course, it's like you're talking about my country. 
So I wonder how, I don't know, I, I don't know how American born Chinese individuals might feel about that, but that's where that, that question was coming from. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you feel a sense of, do I have to defend China because yeah, um, I'm there I don't because I'm not from there. I mean, I'm from there, but I'm not. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, as you were speaking, I was thinking a little bit more about it. And I think I'm thinking about some of the conversations that I have with people who are white about race and then people who are Asian American or Chinese American, Taiwanese American about race. And there's with people, when I talk to white people about race, I feel like I have to be the the voice of the minority or the like defend the minority viewpoint, even if I don't really, at least in the earlier part of my life, didn't really feel like a minority looking back on my experiences. And then once I started undergrad, I started to sort of claim some of my experiences as a minority, but I feel like I am put in the, the role as the minority person in those conversations, which Sometimes I feel okay with other times. I'm like, I don't know if I can speak on this. Mm. Um, But then when in conversations with Asian Americans, Chinese Americans, Taiwanese Americans, I feel like I'm seen as the white voice or the majority voice where it's like my, my viewpoints are either seen as the majority viewpoint or, you know, like there's not a place for how I see things. Uh, So most of the time I'm silent in those conversations, but I also feel like this, a little bit of pushback internally, at least in conversations when people are negative towards China, because I do feel, I mean, I still feel that connection to China being someone who identifies as adopted Chinese American, mm-hmm. like that Chinese part is still part of my identity. And so I feel this, maybe it's like a little bit of indignation when people say negative things about China, even though I don't really know how to combat them or how to have a conversation with people about it. Right. Right. I mean, I think your experience captures perfectly what I hope to accomplish with this podcast, Mm -hmm. which is that people's experiences are not monolithic. People's identities are not. And especially for those who are in between, there's such a, a wide variety of experiences that we have that are actually, they're different, but they're similar in terms of, Mm -hmm. we all are just sort of like, I don't know, just kind of figure it out and make sense of the worlds we've experienced at home and then biologically, ancestrally, culturally, we're just trying to make sense of it. And uh, I think it's a blessing to, to sort of be in between. I think it helps you, like you said, mm-hmm. to have multiple views at one point, majority mm-hmm. at, at times minority, um, even though it, it's some, there are growing pains with it because there's a loss and there's, there's grief and there's maybe I don't, to some extent rejection and not feeling like you fit in, but I think the gold that exists in it is just being able to to see things in a different way. Uh, mm-hmm. Once we kind of get to the place of being settled within our multiplicity, I guess. So I really appreciate you sharing your experience. I'm so glad that you thought to um, bring this up as a mm-hmm. different experience for the for the show. So yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah, so thank you that you made time for this. Yeah, I look forward to talking with you more and learning more. I hope people get a lot from this interview. So thanks so much, Rebecca. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, share with others and leave a rating and review. You can also follow the Unapologetically Us blog. That's un-apologetically-us.com.